Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Caged In Presents Coppola Connections, as always brought to you by the Breadcrumbs Collective and hosted by me, Petros Pat Syllabus. If this is your first time with the podcast, what we do over here is we watch every single film in the collective Coppola family filmography to determine are they the greatest film family of all time time this is episode 34 and i'm not alone on this one i've got a guest as i always do and i'm have the absolute bloody pleasure of being joined by the duke of spook himself the prince of darkness mike munzer from the fantastic possibly best in the game uh podcast the evolution of horror if you're not aware of mike you're you you've really been living under a rock but uh it was great fun to have him on this conversation to talk about a kind of a bit, bit of a curio in the kind of 90s kind of horror thriller genre and it's very much a product of its time and it's yeah we get into all of that and it's a dimensions films film so there's, there's all of that to talk about and it's it's a lot of fun uh so i very much hope you enjoy this chat all of the spoiler warnings do apply we talk about all the all the grisly deaths and all the all the spooky moments within this film so be warned before stepping any further join us as we begin our night shift at the morgue start to lose our minds because of the strange goings on and get ourselves embroiled in a murder case as we make some coppola connections We're here today as I take up my new job as a night watchman. We discuss O.E. Barndow's 1997 horror thriller, Night Watch. The film stars Ewan McGregor, jo- Josh Brolin. I wrote James Brolin. Maybe that is a, a bit of a Freudian <laughs> slip for the character's name. Nick Nolte, Lauren Graham, Brad Dourif, 
John C. Riley, and today's Coppola connection, Patricia Arquette. Joining me to either prove this film's innocence and see if it alone warrants the Coppola's the title of the greatest film family of all time, or if we should frame them for crimes against cinema, is somebody well-versed in the world of all things horror. I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by the host of the phenomenal Evolution of Horror podcast, Mike Munzer. How are you today, Mike? Hello, I'm really good, thank you. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've um, I've just got over like an illness, so on the podcast, it's probably going to be like three weeks where I sound really ill, where it's just episodes <laughs> were recorded and very quick succession. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, wow, he was he was ill for a long time. Like, uh, in, in all fairness, I was ill for maybe five days tops. Um. Before we get into talking about the Coppola family, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about evolution of horror. And yeah, could you explain to us what 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 evolution of horror is, Mike? Yeah, uh, so evolution of horror is a uh, it's a horror film discussion podcast, basically. So I started it about three years ago. Uh, we go through the sort of the history of the horror genre from its like origins, from kind of early cinema all the way through to now. Each week, I'm joined by a different guest who joins me to discuss a different horror film and its kind of place in the horror history. And uh, the podcast is kind of split into seasons where we focus on different subgenres. So we did a series on slasher movies, and then we did a series on zombie movies and ghost movies and all that kind of thing. So that's sort of how it works. Uh, and it's it's a hell of a lot of fun because I just get to talk to very cool people about uh, films I love. So it's 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 amazing. Perfect. I was kind of scouring through your back catalogue, trying to see if there's any, like, kind of crossover, if there's any Coppolas or Cages that might have cropped up. And the only thing I can think of is is something that might be coming up in your, like, upcoming season on Vampires with Francis Ford yes. Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Is, is, that, is that one that will be discussed on the podcast? Yeah, absolutely, that will be discussed. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a good point. Other than that, I, I'm not sure. I'm trying to think if there's any other connection. The thing about a lot of horror films is that they, do, they tend to be pretty small movies and they don't have a lot of big names attached to them uh, a lot of the time. So you don't get a lot of the sort of the Coppola <laughs> dynasty yes. involved in a lot of horror films. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sophia hasn't yet done like a horror about the plights of middle class rich Americans yet. Not yet. It depends if you could look at the bling ring and maybe like shoehorn it in to be a horror about uh, what it's like to be a, a a star having all of your stuff stolen by a group of teenagers. It's kind of a home <laughs> yeah. invasion film, I guess. I mean, it's pretty horrific in places, <laughs> isn't it? Is it is it Sophia Coppola as well that did uh, the Beguiled, where yes. they have to like saw off that guy, uh, saw off Colin Farrell's leg and stuff? I mean, there's a bit of good gruesome body horror in that, you know. Yeah, I guess that's like a southern gothic. At least it's kind of yeah, flirting yeah. with the idea of horror. And I get, I guess Nicolas Cage again is somebody who has flirted with like the the kind of genre. And I know that there was a film that probably would have been perfect for your mind and uh, like body horror season, which I guess you rightfully left off. For obvious reasons, uh, I'm sure regular listeners of the podcast will know why that was left off. Which uh, one are you talking about? Is it Mandy? Color Out of Space. 
Oh, uh, Cal- oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There is a reason why I left that one off. And yeah, I mean, of course, I suppose Nick Cage, he has done a lot of horror movies, hasn't he? He's done, you know, the Wicker Man remake, yes. Mandy, a whole bunch of stuff. So I guess he's the, the sort of biggest connection to the genre. Um, you're going to want to throw me off your podcast immediately when I say this, but I'm not the biggest Nicolas Cage fan. And that's the reason why I haven't really covered a lot of his movies on my podcast. <laughs> that, that's fine. Um, you, you have you have um, Brad Hansen kind of flying the flag whenever whenever opportunity arises on your podcast. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> that's right. And and I did think I did think Mandy was actually a really interesting film. I did I did cover that one. Uh, I interviewed Panos Cosmatos on the mm-hmm. podcast as well, who was really great, really interesting. And that film has a lot of beautiful wonderful yes. elements about it as well which i loved so yeah yeah he, and i and i do think for the record nick cage is an excellent actor i just sometimes <laughs> wish he was in better films you know yes. i really do yeah 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 as as a, as somebody who's watched all of his films i can i can nothing but agree with you on that point i'm kind of mm, mm-hmm. I, i'm there like a parent watching their child play football badly being like <laughs> I'm supporting you, but I wish you did better. I um, know. Come on, man. I mean, I, you know, wild at heart. And like, let's let's bring back that era of Nick Cage, you know. But anyway, anyway, that's a different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about your Coppola credentials. And I always like to ask my guests, first of all, like when they first became aware of the Coppolas. But by that, it's like, what was your entry point by a person? And then when did you realize that they were such a massive family? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think, uh, I reckon it was probably, I was probably a teenager just kind of really falling in love with cinema in like a real kind of diehard way when I was going back and sort of reading about the auteurs and watching the movies that everyone says you have to watch. I remember there was a time when I, you know, discovered Stanley Kubrick and I discovered, you know, David Lynch and then I discovered uh, the Godfather movies. And I, and I, I don't know, there's probably at some point earlier in my life that I'd maybe caught some sort of, Nick Cage film or whatever else mm-hmm. but I can't remember but the first time of really being aware of a Coppola is The Godfather I think and kind of I, I did that in sort of um, I think I even studied it at school and uh, and so watching those films was kind of a, a real eye-opener and then of course discovering that wh- when I was a teenager I was watching movies like The Virgin Suicides and stuff like that and kind of realizing that there was this connection that there was this family i suppose <laughs> um and to be honest a lot of it comes as a huge surprise to me as to who is connected to the couple of family like when you first sent me the list of films to discuss on this podcast <laughs> i was like what because some of them i just i had no idea and again i have to admit i didn't even know that patricia arquette was in any way connected to this family as well so like i'm still learning this is all still new to me she's one of the more tenuous so there's a couple of like tenuous ones and i hate i hate to do like i know it's horrible to speak about people in relation to who they're married to but i just Mm -hmm. wanted an excuse to talk about especially a very interesting era of patricia arquette's career through like the 90s and that period yeah she was married to Nicolas cage so i guess it would have been Mm -hmm. a couple of years before this till 2001 so yeah i get to i get to cover this i get to cover the great david lynch film lost highway i get to cover stigmata and also get to cover lady in the tramp too so uh, amazing (laughs) all the classics all the greats what about what about true romance was that too early was that before she was that was that was too early but i think that was around the time because there's she's she tells a really fascinating story about like how she was courted by nicholas cage and she kind of he he was like kind of 
she was dating somebody else at the time and he kind of like you you imagine him like especially in the the late 80s early 90s kind of very much in sailor ripley mode like leather jacket and stuff like that yeah kind of said to her like one day i'm gonna marry you and she said well i'll marry you if you can kind of collect these items kind of sent him on a quest like (laughs) one of them was like an original like edgar Allan poe writing it was all like really weird stuff do you know what I mean like a raven's feather it was really like fantasy Amazing. movie stuff and he did it all and then she was like well i guess i'm marrying nicholas cage then incredible incredible <laughs> and i suppose the arquette family in itself as well another quite big famous kind of dynasty in acting and film right as well so that's kind of interesting yeah they, there is these kind of weird crossovers when you get to like I guess Angelica Houston has been in like a Francis mm. Ford Coppola film and then mm-hmm. he's in all the other Wes Anderson films who like in a weird way Wes Anderson feels like he's kind of like the the weird stepson of the Coppola family because when you start looking right. at Jason Schwartzman and Roman Coppola's involvement in those films it's like yeah they yeah. and then Spike Jones like his career doesn't really happen without the the marriage to Sophia and Francis yeah. Ford Coppola giving him the script to being John Malkovich and being like, hey, I know you're making skate movies and stuff like that, but I reckon you should direct this script. And then it's like, boom, we don't get, I don't know, we don't get everything else off the back of that. All like, that you know? incredible stuff. It's true. Spike Jones, one of my favorite filmmakers yes. as well, actually. Um, some really interesting stuff there. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. What an amazing, <laughs> sprawling family tree this is. It's great. Was there anyone in particular on that list who you kind of like scratched your head or like surprised you the most that they they're kind of related and kind of like were like how how are they involved with the family? Again, like like I said, I have such poor knowledge of like my my partner is always kind of mocking me for I never know anything about celebrities. <laughs> I barely know anything about actors. I never know who's married to who, who's related to who. So most of these names, to be honest, are a shock to me that they are in any way related to the fact I didn't know um, Jason Schwartzman. I didn't know Lisa Marie Presley. Like all of these like various names all come as a surprise <laughs> to me, to be honest. I think I knew Sophia, Nick Cage and Francis Ford Coppola. And that's about it. Um, so, yeah, what a, what a task you've got in working your way through all of these. I think I'll be doing it for the next three years at least, and uh, <laughs> I, 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 I'm hoping some 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 guests in the future pick some of the the lesser known family members because uh, I have a feeling otherwise that the, the final stretch of this podcast will be just me mopping up the the straight to VOD <laughs> dross that is kind of out there, the stuff yeah. of wavering quality at least. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, Mike, you you obviously have worked in like the kind of the peripheries of film kind of journalism and doing the podcast stuff like that you ever had the opportunity to meet a Coppola at all that is a good question I don't think I have I was just trying to remember whether I've ever met Patricia Arquette because I've done a lot of I worked for the BBC for several years and um basically interviewed pretty much everyone that was publicizing a film from week to week we did the i I produced the um the sort of flagship bbc one film program uh where we would go and basically yeah do all the press interviews for every movie coming out and i definitely i definitely went to the press junket for boyhood 
Um, but I don't think she was there at the time, or I don't think <laughs> I got to interview her. I, uh, the rest of the cast, I did. Um, and who else is that? Definitely never met Nick Cage. I'd remember that. Uh, and I've definitely, I've never met Jason Schwartzman. I don't think I have, you know. I don't think I have. Um, it would be awesome, wouldn't it? What a treat to get to meet some of these people. Um, uh, I th- uh, Yeah, like something about Patricia Arquette is ringing a bell like maybe at some point I might have interviewed her for like a minute on a red carpet or something uh-huh. but 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 nothing that really kind of um sticks in the mind nothing particularly no, no good stories to tell sadly my, my favorite one of the answers for this was somebody who was like I saw Phantom Planet back in the day does that count and I was like yeah I guess I guess being in the same room as Jason Schwartzman as he drums and <laughs> they play California definitely counts as as kind Perfect. of breathing That'll... the same air as a Coppola at least. That'll <laughs> do, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, Mike, what would have been your introduction to Patricia Arquette on screen? Well, I think it was True Romance. Actually, that was uh, I, I, I. I had older siblings, and I was kind of introduced to quite a lot of kind of more adult movies I guess quite early on and I remember seeing a lot of the Tarantino movies when I was probably way too young to be watching those sorts of films I was in primary school and uh, I was quite disturbed by some of the violence in some of these movies I remember but I really liked True Romance and I remember really liking Patricia Arquette and Christian Slater in it I think that was my sort of first introduction to her Uh, and then like I say I, I got I, I became a real horror fan in the 90s, uh-huh. um, in the late 90s, particularly kind of following the success of movies like Scream and then that kind of wave of horror movies that followed Scream in the late 90s, all made by sort of Miramax, Dimension Films, those kind of things. And Nightwatch was one of those movies, right? That was like one of their titles. Um, and I definitely sought out Nightwatch and watched it when I was young in the 90s in that kind of boom of 90s horror. So that... That and True Romance were probably my first two movies um, of Patricia Arquette, uh, of Patricia Arquette, and then definitely um, what's it called? The what? Stigmata as well. Oh, Stigmata. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I thought you were going to say, uh, of course, Nightmare on Elm Street Three, Dream Warriors. Which oh, of course, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and that's that that as well. Like I can't remember whether or not I saw that before or after. Uh, Nightwatch. It would have been around the same time because it was it was during my kind of horror awakening. It was when I was <laughs> discovering all of the classics for the first time in the middle of that kind of nineties wave of horror. So it would have been around that exact same time as well. Actually, yeah. Perfect. Well, it feels like a perfect time to talk about Nightwatch. But before we do, let's listen to the trailer, especially the trailer from 1987, which gives us a flavour of what horror was like at that time. Martin Bell's was a full time student who needed a nighttime job. How could you give away all your nights without talking to me first? It's a test. I'm testing myself. You don't think it's weird? I have a pretty high tolerance to that sort of thing. But he just accepted the wrong one. A 17-year-old girl was found dead this evening, the third in as many weeks and the sixth in the last two months. I saw her in the hallway. Now... A series of murders have invaded his life. I've interrogated murders like this one before. Let me tell you, they are well beyond the need to justify what they do. They just do it. They have a suspect. It's me. (laughs) Boy, they got the wrong guy. He didn't do it. Martin is not a murderer. I think someone is trying to frame me. Martin, if this is what I think it is... There's someone very dangerous standing right behind you in the dark, breathing down your neck. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ewan McGregor, Patricia Arquette, Josh Brolin, and Nick Nolte. Tell me something, Martin. Are you still going to maintain your innocence? Nightwatch. So, Nightwatch was released on home video in the UK in October 1998. As I said in the intro, it is directed by Oe Bondal and written by, well, adapted at least by Oe Bondal from his original script of Danish language with the help of Steven Soderbergh, which is really fascinating. And uh, so the Steven budget... Soderbergh, never above making a bit of a schlocky thriller every now and then, uh, you know, uh, he loves it. Yeah, I heard recently somebody discuss Steven Soderbergh and saying what's fascinating about him is every single film he does, especially when it's in like a kind of uh, the genre trappings, it seems like he just loves that genre, whether he's doing like mm-hmm. uh, Kimmy, his newest film, which kind of like is the paranoid kind of, almost like the the bastard child of blowout and uh the conversation to bring it back to francis ford coppola with yeah like yeah. a bit of rear window thrown in or or yeah. doing like unsane or something like that it's all kind of you just all oh, right and then he's doing magic mike and it's like yeah he, lo- he he just loves cinema and i guess uh you see that when you see there's that fascinating is it sight unseen that list he does every year where it's just everything yeah. he's been watching and ingesting throughout the year and stuff like that he's kind of he'll totally. watch he'll watch the big stuff he'll watch the small stuff high art low art he'll have it all yeah. um yeah so what were your initial thoughts when you yeah when you watched this back in the day mike did it how did, how did it how did it catch you 
I loved it back in the day. This was a real favourite of mine. I remember finding it really genuinely scary uh, and and twisted and disturbing. Um, again, I watched this, I, I think I watched it when it was basically new out on video, which would have meant I was 10 years old. So I was quite young to be watching this movie about murdered sex workers. But um, yeah, I watched it, loved it thought the suspense was great. I thought some moments of it really chilled me. And I have kind of good memories of this movie in general. <laughs> and then the older I've got, the kind of more I've realised, hmm, how well has this aged, I wonder, you know? And obviously, like you say, it's a, the director, uh, Ole Borndal, he he remade his own movie from 1994, Danish movie. Um, and uh, and it's, it's generally thought of as a pretty inferior remake. Um, and... Yeah, I I suppose kind of like, but but generally, and we'll talk about what we thought of it this time around. But I, I I generally my memories of it at the time were really good. It really kind of felt like it was cashing in on that wave of '90s slasher movies, mm-hmm. where you've got all of these young hot stars that appear on the poster. You've got a, a murderer. You've got an almost who done it. Like who is the the killer in this group of characters? Um, so it's got that kind of scream dimension film Kevin Williamson kind of cachet. Um, and then it's also cashing it. And then it also feels a bit seven and a bit Silence yes. of the Lambs. And it's a bit procedural thriller, you know, slightly more quote unquote classy than than a, than a slasher movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course it isn't at all. But um, <laughs> but but it, it kind of feels like it's sort of straddling both those subgenres in a way and trying to appeal to kind of um, both audiences. And yeah, at the time, I thought it did a great job of that. <laughs> Well, from, from doing some research, and I, I tried to track it down, but it seems to be quite hard to get hold of. This this had like an original two-hour, like over two-hour cut of, of the movie, which kind of mm. has an entire subplot all about um, Josh Brolin and Lauren Graham's character, about them kind of like the, the, the troubles with their engagement and stuff like that. Mm. And I know that the intro as well, that kind of that opening sequence we get of like this almost uh de palmer-esque like pov shot of like a a murder taking yeah. place that's quite quite gruesome like didn't get put into the film till like kind of uh post-production i think like this is a film like <laughs> like many films of the 90s and moving forward that had the horrible chop from hollywood's two most biggest bastards really the, the yes. weinstein brothers right um yeah definitely like there's a lot of movies made by them where you can feel their their chopping you can feel their edward scissor hands like let's <laughs> slice this up and add this and add this and yeah I, and, and you could see why maybe they thought at the time again in the wake of movies like scream stick a murder in the opening scene let's get rid of some of the kind of relationship nuances yes. Amp up the gore, amp up the sex, um, and kind of see what we end up with, I suppose. And what we end up with is quite a sleazy, grimy sort of, I still think quite fun in places and still quite creepy in places, but also it is, everyone in it is so reprehensible that it does kind of leave a bit of a horrible taste in your mouth by the end, I think, this movie, you know? Definitely. And before we get into the things that we like and dislike about this film, can you tell us what? what the plot of this movie is mike sure yeah so it's um again on paper i think this plot is awesome but this guy uh, called martin played by ewan mcgregor he's a student and he gets a job for a bit of extra cash as a night watchman in a morgue so that in itself is a scary premise right so his job is literally to sit all night in this dark office and just keep an eye 
that nothing awry happens basically in this room full of dead bodies and i think every hour throughout his shift he has to like do the rounds and go around each room in the morgue and he has to kind of press these buttons and turn these keys just to prove that he's done the rounds and meanwhile while this is happening a serial killer is on the loose who is killing sex workers and potentially um, potentially kind of um, molesting their bodies as well, right? Their dead bodies. And these two threads start to intertwine as uh, Martin, played by Ewan McGregor, suddenly starts to realise that someone else is in that morgue and is doing things to these dead bodies while he's on his night shift. And in, in the words of Nick Nolte in that trailer is, he's breathing down his neck in the dark. Like, the, <laughs> And so there's there's all of these kind of great moments with Ewan McGregor just kind of in this dark, creepy place surrounded by dead bodies and you don't quite know if someone else is in there with him. And then there's all this other stuff too about his relationship with his best friend played by Josh Brolin who's a complete tosser and the way in which they treat women and the way in which they treat uh, sex workers and then that starts to have an effect on his relationship with his partner played by Patricia Arquette and then it also kind of inadvertently turns him into a suspect in this whole murder case basically so that, that's kind of it in a nutshell. That's perfect yeah it's, 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 it's a fascinating kind of um, I don't know film about and you're saying like the other things that are thrown into the film like one of the things that even watching it again now I was kind of taken aback by even going like what what is that about is the the bin bags on the walls that just like oh, just yeah just seem there to just seem to be put there to to just be like well let's just like let's just make that terrifying and it's like what, I, I, <laughs> what? like i have no idea what what it's all about like honestly i i really think this is 50% a brilliant horror film and and i almost wonder you know in this day and age you'd, you'd almost imagine a movie being made for netflix that was a bit like this made by somebody like mike flanagan maybe that is just a man in a morgue on his own overnight right yes. and none of that other bollocks like that surrounds it and um it's just a sort of suspense play almost right and and i think those moments in this film are still excellent like you say that amazing production design where they've just put like i think what it is is like loads of trees that they've put bin bags over right so when the wind blows at night they all kind of like the, the bags are all moving so you can see what looks like figures moving in the background all the time and there's this weird device where in um, Ewan McGregor's office, there's this red light that will go off if a cord is pulled above any of the dead bodies, i.e. if any of the dead bodies wake up <laughs> and pull this emergency cord, this huge red, this ominous red light will suddenly go off. And of course, that happens at some point in the movie. And I think there are a lot of really cool horror devices and elements in this. And I think that the stuff that happens in the morgue at night is still excellent, you know? So, like, what what would you kind of say, like, are the kind of big horror influences on this? Because I've seen some people say, like, there is, like, a giallo, like, it, like tint to the film. Would you, would you see that at all in the kind of the way this is put uh, together? Yeah, 100%. Especially, like you said, the, the opening scene, you know, you think of De Palma, but you do also think of giallo, the knife, the blood, you know, the, there, is a, there is an operatic uh, element to this movie with the murders, I think, that certainly makes it feel quite giallo-esque um and then there is definitely a there's definitely a slasher movie element too right mm -hmm. you know and i suppose those two are kind of linked you know slashers kind of wouldn't have existed you know arguably without giallo and i think yeah. there is a there is a a definite influence from like i say that that 
the 90s slashes in particular. Um, even though the original Danish movie came before Scream, this movie feels like a movie that was made in the wake of the success of Scream. Um, yes. And so I think there is that, there's that kind of body count element. And, and, and then, you know, whether you call it horror, but that sort of Silence of the Lambs, that seven, that procedural, that there was also this kind of wave of 90s, early 90s prestigious thrillers, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Erotic, erotic thrillers too. And I think this kind of owes a debt to those. So Basic Instinct, uh, Fatal Attraction, Sliver, and all of those movies as well. I think this has also got an element of that to it as well, like a almost a kind of not as good version of a kind of Paul Verhoeven movie or something because yeah, yeah, there yeah, is yeah. something quite sleazy about this as well you know so I think it's, it's it's got all of those elements kind of in a boiling pot yeah I, th I think the reason I kind of I'm drawn to De Palma might be that I'm, I'm currently covering De Palma on like a Patreon season so like oh, great. It, for me he is kind of like the he is the the American Dario Argento basically They're yeah. both kind of borrowing from Hitchcock and the, I just wanted to talk about that opening sequence because it really is like you can you can tell why it's in the film because it really does kind of grab you by the throat and make you sit up in your chair like with the you've kind of the the POV shot kind of like floating around the room yeah the ceiling fan you've got like the the sex worker kind of seems into what is ever whatever's going on and then it like it takes a turn for the dark and then yeah just yeah just that ceiling fan coming down and taking out the bird i was like what the fuck is going on here yeah it's quite a powerful opening scene actually isn't it i really like it and of course you're right i mean de palma all of these go back to hitchcock and of course it also really goes back to the film that was you know really um kind of dismissed at the time that came out the same year as psycho which was peeping tom it's, yes. it's almost the same opening as peeping tom where you've got this point of view shot from the killer as this sex worker invites him into her flat and then he murders her brutally you know so it it definitely is drawing on all that great kind of tradition of you know slashy stabby kind of thriller movies and it is you know for a movie for a scene like you said that was kind of added in at the last minute in post-production it is quite a chilling opening scene and that the, the combination of the sort of mood it creates with some of those quite weird shots to that ceiling fan coming down and like you say the bird and everything it is and even through the opening credit sequence which again feels a bit like the opening credits for something like seven or something yeah, yeah, i yeah, think yeah. i think the movie creates quite a good vibe doesn't it it creates quite a good atmosphere in that first sort of five ten minutes well what i love about it is like the the, the score for this film kind of really just encapsulates whatever it wants to do at any moment as well so like <laughs> yeah it's kind of like it's like we got to remember we're in the '90s, so sometimes it's like boom, chicka, boom, chicka, boom, chicka, yeah, boom. and then like there's like <laughs> yeah. loads of needle drops, but then other times it's kind of high tension, high drama, jalo strings and stuff like that, and it's kind of whoa, like take takes yeah. you takes you aback a bit. So, so yeah, I guess one one of the things I wanted to discuss is um, maybe that's yeah that subplot we get with uh, Martin and um, James, like, and how this mm. film because it's. <laughs> from like moment one we're, we're we're told as an audience right that james is one you should be looking at james james is because like yeah all of the stuff he says like just really bizarre and kind of like do you yes. know what i mean like just yeah a bit odd like yeah that they are quite horrible characters aren't they that these two sort of um these two sort of central male characters martin you know who is our sort of good guy played by ewan mcgregor he is our sort of hero but even he is not 
a very nice, likable character, is he? I mean, I don't know whether maybe he was supposed to be in 1998, but he doesn't really doesn't really come across well in watching it again in 2022, I don't think. And they've got this weird thing. It's almost like that kind of, what's it called? That sort of Nietzschean sort of ubermensch kind of complex where they, they're looking for this kind of thrill. It's almost like they are bored with their life. They want to find something that can make life interesting. They're looking for a challenge, basically. They're they're the ultimate kind of privileged, toxic men who feel like they've done everything. Everything that they want is for them on a plate. And they're bored. So they're wondering how they can push themselves, right? Um, they both have these girlfriends who they treat really appallingly. Mm-hmm. And they go through this kind of challenge throughout the film where they try and push themselves to do different things. And that includes sleeping with a sex worker or doing this or doing that. Um, it's kind of interesting on paper. Like I think that, you know, you could look at this movie as actually being about toxic masculinity, right? This whole film really is about men and the way they treat women even when we know we'll get to it but even when it comes to the killer right and how he treats these sex workers and these dead bodies and everything else and what he wants and whether he wants to stop but he can't and all this and you feel like that it's it's all about these men with god complexes almost right and that that in itself is interesting i don't think that the film and maybe that's because like you said loads of that stuff might have been cut Mm -hmm. and because of that it all feels a bit half-baked and this is the stuff that i think doesn't come across very well because you spend time with these horrible men who you don't really like. It doesn't really feel like it's saying much. And then because the female characters are so sort of quite thinly drawn, it doesn't really feel like it's doing enough with that theme. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I wish that I could say that the, the that, that that stuff was left on the cutting room floor. But from reading yeah. about, about the original, apparently like this version is toned down in its kind of misogyny and stuff like that so like yeah that is one of the saving graces from this one so i'm not sure if that that kind of exploration of toxic masculinity like the deeper exploration mm-hmm. at least was in the original text to begin with but like i, I really yeah. i really like like that that aspect of it and one of the things you find throughout the film as well is martin keeps talking about himself like as if he is the lead in a film there's this kind of post tarantino yeah. self-awareness whether it's the kind of conversation that they they have about pop culture and like would you rather watch a movie like about an mm. action adventure for an hour and a half or do you like it for <laughs> half the movie it's that and then it's one guy and then it's him reading a book for yeah you know, and then yeah. i think later on in the film he's talking to cray i think it is and he's like oh if yeah, if I was the and he keep, he refers to himself as the hero. He's like, if I was the hero in the story, like this would go di- that things would go differently. And I find that really fascinating. That like obviously mm-hmm. that that kind of speaks somewhat to that kind of god complex and that kind of like for Martin, he is like the lead of his like like everyone in their life is the lead of his own story. But like the way that he has this weird detached element about it and kind of like yeah. Talk, like talks about and yeah and the, the challenges they do and like i don't know i think it makes for some of the more distressing like real world moments in the film like obviously you can detach yourself from the idea of being embroiled in a plot with like a serial killer but like the stuff in regards to like in the bar and stuff like that and the way that like yeah that you're saying like yeah they treat their girlfriends like shit like 
when when mm. Josh Brolin says to Lauren Graham's character, like, "Oh, we're going to stay." She's like, no, we're not. And she's like, oh, no, I wasn't talking about us. I was talking about me and Martin. We're going to stay here and drink. Yeah. And then proceed. And then, it, yeah, then it, it goes on to that fight that he has. And um, just wanted to, like, to kind of, sh- like, show the, yeah, show the listeners kind of what, what James is like. I, I pulled a clip of him and Martin speaking in the car. And you kind of, you get an, you get that aspect that the, the filmmakers are definitely trying to do, that he, he could be the killer as well. Definitely. Back there at the bar, you were excited, right? It was a rush. You felt good. You felt alive, didn't you? Yeah, sure. Lucy, I didn't feel anything. Nothing. A year ago, I would have felt like you. I would have felt hyped up, flushed. But it's like my tolerance is increasing. And I can't get that feeling anymore, Martin. And I have to get that feeling. I just don't get that feeling, and I need it. Yeah, I have to, too. Yep. Hey. Challenge me. So yes, yeah, spo- spoiler alert ahead that that James isn't the killer, but even if he's not, he is definitely a sociopath, right? He absolutely is. Yeah, <laughs> and and one of the tricky things again about the film, and uh, you know, I don't know whether in some ways, like you said, if the original, and I've seen the original a long time ago, and I remember it being really similar, but the original has more misogyny in it. Sometimes that can help in that it can hammer home a bit more how abhorrent it is. Whereas with this movie, because it's it's done with a lighter touch, it's more difficult to get a grasp of that. And the, the scene that is really uncomfortable for several reasons is when he he hires the sex worker to come and sit at a restaurant with Martin, right? And James sort of watches on from another table and laughs as this sex worker kind of starts giving him a handjob in the restaurant. And it's sort of played for laughs, but at the same time, it's really dark and horrible because this poor woman is so... She just looks so traumatised and upset by everything she's being put through. But at the same time, it's almost like this sort of knockabout comedy scene. And that's the stuff that I think the film doesn't do very well. Even though there is something really interesting in this. Like you say, that conversation that you just played, there's something really fascinating in exploring this idea of these two really you know, privileged, good-looking dudes who are just like, you know, have this kind of weird narcissism or God complex about them that are basically sociopaths, particularly James. But yeah, I think ultimately all it comes to is to make him a red herring because you think he's going to be the killer. I think that's it really, isn't it? Yeah, that is the thing. Like they they had the opportunity to kind of explore these deeper things and like... uh, Yeah. But they they, they missed, yeah, they missed the mark on it. But Mm. that, that scene you just talked about, thing that really gets me with that as well is afterwards when james is like goading the sex worker into like saying i'll give you 150 dollars if you can yeah you can say uh, i love you and make me believe it and it just makes you like it makes you feel dirty as a like as, as an audience and it's like any any titters of laughter that scene beforehand could have got and i know in the original cut of the film as well that scene was longer like more graphic mm. as well so i don't know like I do, yeah, I imagine I imagine that 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 hit the chopping block because they're like, oh, we want we want to keep this like, <laughs> want to keep the rating down and get get as many yeah. eyes. Yeah, like I think like sometimes showing people the real darkness and stuff can make can make more of like an impact and kind of those showing them as more negative people. I know it's that thing of you want somebody to 
to like, but I think what this film cleverly does is it kind of in the final act, as much as Martin is the the kind of conduit for the audience, mm. is Patricia Arquette very much gets framed like throughout the film as like a final girl, at least in that archetype, yeah. but like with with that sequence of her sneaking into Joyce's apartment and mm-hmm. her kind of getting the, the the moment where she's like crawling across broken glass to try and yeah. like get the fire alarm. It's like, oh great. Like again, I wish that Patricia Arquette somewhat got to do a bit more because most of the film she's kind of sidelined to just like whine and whimper and just like yeah. be subject to Martin's yeah ill behavior and um yeah but what 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 do you what 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 do you think of patricia arquette's performance in what she gets to do well i i hate to say it but i don't think it's her best performance i I don't think any of them are giving their best performances in this film i think actually josh brolin is doing a really good job actually as james he's good he's genuinely chilling and horrible i think ewan mcgregor and patricia arquette who we know are really good actors I'm not quite at their best in this movie, and I can only assume that's down to the directing more than anything. Um, it's a it's a little bit flat and a little bit one note, I think, from both of them, particularly. And Patricia Arquette, like you said, has quite little to work with for for the bulk of the movie. She is this sort of slightly sort of put upon girlfriend, really, and that's sort of it. And then she does, like you say, she she sort of becomes the final girl at the end and she gets some quite good moments, but really all she gets to do is sort of scream and cry, um, even as the sort of final girl character. Um, and you're kind of rooting for her and there's that quite tense moment when she goes into the flat of the sex worker and finds her dead and the killer is right there in the bathroom next to her and it's quite a good scary moment and you're really kind of rooting for her at that moment as our sort of heroine but she she doesn't get a whole lot to do does she let's be honest it's it's a shame you know it it is a real shame and like you can only hope that yeah if if uh, i don't know what, it's got to be 25 years since this film came out? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, 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 that some so, somebody might dig up that old, that original cut and maybe maybe s- slip it out on, on, That's on right. home media. That would like to make, yeah, hopefully we, we'll be having this conversation again, the, the, the redux. <laughs> we know how good she is, right? I mean, she's won an Oscar since for Boyhood. She, she was amazing even before this in True Romance. I mean, even in Dream Warriors, she has a more nuanced layered character than she does in this film i think you know which is a bit of a shame well and in the same year as well she's she's in lost highway which like yeah again she doesn't she doesn't really get to say much but like she gets to just act and kind of like you know i mean yeah a a physical presence and kind of is utilized or i mean david lynch knows who who and what patricia arquette is and kind of yeah and i think like yeah that film is in some ways is a really interesting companion i think it's a sort of better example of a movie about fragile men right and men's psyches and male paranoia and that patricia arquette's character is really framed right in the center of that kind of slightly weird surreal lynchian subjective view of who is this woman is she some sort of temptress is she some sort of femme fatale is she just an innocent victim and she gets to play all of those roles in lost highway which is so good like you say he he kind of cast her and got her to really play to her strengths in that movie i think yeah yeah whereas this she's kind of sidelined to just yeah like scream 
Which yeah, is... the film the film is definitely much more interested in the men in this film. You know, it really is, um, and that's why it's a shame that some some of those explorations of of what it means to be a man in this world aren't aren't quite there. You know, aren't quite on point. Definitely, definitely. So yeah, let's talk about the casting of Nick Nolte. And I'm not sure about you, but like, even like rewatching this, it's been a long time since first watching it. You kind of pick up you go oh it's nick nolte of course he's gonna be he's sinister he's got a sinister edge to it (laughs) (laughs) he just just grunts his way through doesn't he (laughs) oh yeah he's great isn't he in this i really you know he's one of those people a bit a bit like brad dourif as well it's like every time he steps onto screen in this film you go oh okay amazing like he's 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 got a bit of weight about him and his role is quite ridiculous particularly in the last act like he go you know it's quite silly what he does but actually, I think he does a really good job. I think he's much better in this than Ewan McGregor. Um, mm-hmm. I think he 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 has a bit of gravitas and, um, I don't know, something about him and his presence in this movie sort of worked for me. I really liked him in it. So what do you think of the kind of the, the, the reveal and the kind of, yeah, the, 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 the plot that, that obviously Nick Nolte is this disgraced night watchman who we get, we get whispers of, right? You kind of, the, that, that really, I think a really effective sequence in this is that first time that Martin is shown round the morgue and like from yeah. the, kind of the set design and the, there's some, there's some great camera work in this. There's a lot of like kind of low, long shots and stuff like that. And these kind of yeah. like pans into people and like a lot mm-hmm. of uses of eyes and stuff like that. But yeah, what do you think of the kind of plot machinations that, that turn out that, uh, uh, Nick Nolte's character, Inspector Cray, is the is the killer. Bad. Yeah, yeah. I I kind of like it, and and I'm, I agree with you. I think that 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 stuff in the morgue, you really only see him in the morgue. Like he he only you know because he comes in and out during the night shift, doesn't he? And you know all of those scenes are my favorite scenes. Like I said, and I totally agree with you. Those amazing kind of camera movements. It's quite over the top. Yes. Again, it's quite Italian, but there is something <laughs> about those kind of like. Those those pans and those tracking shots and those dolly zooms with these yeah. kind of strings, you know, every time they enter a new scary room or something. Um, and yeah, in terms of Nick Nolte's character and his motivations, it's it's kind of in- there is something again really interesting there at the heart of it that he was this disgraced mortician who had had sex with the dead bodies, and the morgue was too ashamed to sort of prosecute and go public. So they just sort of quietly let him go and he's still out there. And and now he's become this police officer who is investigating these murders that he is committing. Um, there's this interesting thing where he talks about the killer and is he actually making a confession? Is he talking about himself or is he just making it up? But he sort of says... I think this killer wants to stop. I think he wants to put an end to what he's doing and he's trying to, but he can't stop himself. So he's trying to figure out a way to do that. And by framing somebody and putting somebody else away for it, it means that he will have to stop what he's doing. He, he essentially says that to Martin through the film, doesn't he? And yeah, is that, is that actually his MO? Like, do we think that he is, you know he's this he's this sexual deviant basically that can't stop what he's doing but he wants to stop or is that all just complete nonsense and is he just making that up to fool martin and is he really enjoying what he's doing and will he continue enjoying what he's doing you know i don't know yeah i'm not sure because yeah there are moments where basically he he tells like and it's quite interesting on rewatch because Mm. he tells martin like what he's going to do next basically yeah he's like 
he would he, he he's found somebody who's close to it and there's there's a, all he was looking for was a link to Joyce that he can kind of like have that have that link so he will be able to frame that person and he's yeah. like he, he might as well say Martin you're gonna go down for this like like yeah. <laughs> kind of as an audience like yeah as a, on rewatch you rewatch it and go oh yeah like he he course he's the killer like yeah like, he's really sort of he's sort of slowly setting up all the chess pieces from the start isn't he but you kind of want to believe he, he at, the, at the beginning he kind of feels like quite an ally he feels like quite a nice guy and somebody who martin kind of quite enjoys being in his company right at the beginning but but yeah if he is this psychopath he's a very self-aware psychopath right he's very um he he seems to be very aware of his own psychosis and what his mo is and you know when when he's playing the role of the police officer he's very good at kind of explaining what this serial killer is all about yes. uh, which is quite funny you know and and uh, again it feels very thomas harris it feels very silence of the lambs this idea of hannibal lecter kind of explaining how this serial killer's mind works and even all that stuff towards the end of him, of of Martin kind of uncovering who the killer is by going through all the files and finding all the old Night Watchman stuff. It feels a bit like you're watching Red Dragon or Silence of the Lambs or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but yeah, I, again, I, I it's you know, again, it feels a little bit half baked in this movie compared to some of those others. But I generally I enjoyed Nick Nolte. I thought he was good in the bulk of the film and I kind of enjoy his killer reveal at the end and then him going full nuts with Patricia Arquette in the final act, you know? Well, yeah, because the film obviously does that thing where the audience are ahead of the characters in the film because we get the reveal when Nick Nolte comes out of the bathroom in Joyce's yeah. apartment once he's killed her and then obviously yeah. Patricia Arquette's Catherine hasn't seen like a name written on a piece of paper and then, and then, obviously, like that's kind of one of the pieces, coupled with the fact that, again, it feels it feels like it's just written in to kind of be able to reveal who the killer is when they're like, James has just yeah has been seeing Joyce, but saying he's Martin, and yeah. Martin must pretend he's James for for some reason, <laughs> yeah. and then that's kind of like the yeah. smoking gun that puts doubt in everyone's mind and kind of gets everybody kind of on the same page to be like something's not right with inspector cray right now yeah and it take and john c Riley starts to get suspicious doesn't he um yeah it's great i mean i you know all of that is quite funny and again there is something there if i'm giving the film lots of credit i mean there is a really interesting parallel between martin and inspector cray right that it's kind of building up this idea that they are similar that they're parallel that that they both have this weird god complex they both kind of think of themselves as better than women mm -hmm. and that they can do what they want with women and i think martin is is almost like dipping his toe in that world with what he's doing with james but he's resisting it and it's almost like nick nolte's character is like that's the path that he could end up going down if he's not careful almost you know um and yeah. it's kind of it's kind of interesting you know and it feels like there's a version of this film as well where like james could almost be like the because a lot of the conversations they have it's just the two of them like yeah and it's it's almost like there could be some kind of theory or or, or at least like pro, they're just projections of martin's mind kind of like yeah him trying to rationale like what he's doing and like there could be an an interesting version of of, of a film like this where it is somebody trying to 
to grapple with maybe they are the killer and they're kind of the dissociative like that's so true yeah it's like a it's almost like a fight club-esque kind of story i suppose i mean it could be couldn't it yeah you're yeah, right yeah 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 if it was kind of handled yeah yeah in different hands i think that would have been like the reveal that it was martin all along especially in that yeah. kind of mike flanagan version you kind of uh like yeah uh, yeah pitched earlier with like just him in the in the in the in the morgue like you could imagine telephone calls or at least like his mm. friend coming to visit and then it is that kind of psychological thing of like is, is that guy real like what is yeah what is a bit like secret window and those types of movies uh, it's true and like in some ways you know josh brolin's character james he is like the he's like the better looking more confident more self-assured version of martin isn't he throughout which is a very ed norton tyler durden yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. dynamic in a way yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a good I, shout i find that really fascinating so um what like how do you think this fits into that kind of stable of dimension films like uh roster oh like perfectly because you, you like when you look at the other dimension films from the 90s you've got you know the faculty you've got scream i know what you did last summer like all of that kind of stuff and you know you've got everything from your opening kill down to your murder mystery whodunit to your glossy good looking cast to it not making a whole lot of sense but it doesn't really matter to that mix of kind of classic horror with a hip 90s soundtrack like you say those kind of yeah. needle drops like these are all like quintessential dimension films 90s horror kind of traits so they they look a bit jarring and dated at times these days i think but it was such a thing at the time you know it was always trying to be sort of gruesome and scary but also really cool and yeah, yeah. trendy you know and that's like that's exactly what it feels like this film is trying to do like you said earlier even even listening to the trailer you'll get a sense of that that is what that vibe is isn't it and it very much looks like josh brolin maybe had like a two-picture deal with them because i think he filmed this and mimic back to back <laughs> oh definitely yeah it, yeah it, if you if you watch some of the, like the later sequences in the film uh josh brolin has slightly longer hair because they kind of came back for reshoots and he's got his <laughs> mimic hair like when they're kind yeah. of like wrapping the film up so it's uh I, I, lo I love that kind of stuff where it's like shit we need to kind of we need to give it that classic and it very much does feel like that really big in the the 90s as well they kind of saw that it was a thing in the 80s and it's like every film had to have it where the film ends with the protagonist kind of coming out of what, the murder house or wherever <laughs> yeah. the murders have taken place in a blanket there's just yeah loads of cops there's helicopters in this one for some reason there's an ambulance and they kind of just get that yeah. like those again you get a very weird conversation between james and martin where he says to him, and I've got, I've, I've got it written down here because I, I don't want to misquote it because I just, and I found it quite bizarre where he says, um, he says to him like, let's grow old together. And it like, I was like, mm. it kind of leaves like a bit of, I don't know what that, what that sentiment is supposed to mean. Have you got like a, did, did that No, I mean you? like the. They're just like best buds, aren't they? Uh, slash, there's something quite maybe almost homoerotic about this relationship, right? From the start, like the way yeah. that they kind of egg each other on to sleep with like the sex workers, the way that James kind of wants to watch while his mate gets a hand job and stuff. Like it's there is something there too, almost that these two men really are in love with each other as well. I think you know, but um, it's yeah, it's weird. It's a bit messy that that final conversation, and again, you kind of end up 
almost wanting to go like it's almost like the film wants you to go oh you know they're nice guys really i'm glad they survived kind of thing and it's like well they're not <laughs> well yeah you, I, I think i was left thinking like oh so james is definitely going to end up murdering some people like do you know what I mean? or yeah he's, he's, he's gonna do some some bad shit eventually um how do you like yeah. watching it this time and i guess it's a problem i have with the film is that whole kind of end sequence everything like from the reveal of nick nolte feels massively rushed mm, mm-hmm. it does feel a bit rushed yeah and it, it has to like tick a lot of boxes it has to get from a to b to c like they've got to get to the morgue to you know Patricia Arquette's gonna think that Ewan McGregor's the killer for a moment so he's got to get locked in the room and then they go off and they do this thing and they go off in a room together and then they get attacked and yeah it does again it feels like there was probably at some point a longer cut of this there's there was potential to have a really great really scary final act in that morgue right with these characters being stalked by this killer and it does feel like a bit of a missed opportunity in that regard where you end up with Martin and Patricia Arquette's character just like crying and screaming tied up on like a gurney together basically for like quite a lot of that last act and then it's just like you say then it's just sort of over you know yeah yeah and there's some there's some real like kind of lapses in logic which i guess you find in a lot of horror movies where it's like so patricia arquette has left inspector bill at her apartment taken her bike like gone on her, her own to the morgue mm. like even mm-hmm. like and she she knows that the killer is out there. She knows that the killer is probably closer than she thinks he is. Like there yeah. is there is like there's been seeds of doubt in everyone's mind that it could be Martin as well. Yet she yeah. goes anyway, and it's like that 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 that, it's that, weird. that yeah. bizarre like. You're right. Like the whole mo- the moment from when she goes into that flat, sees the dead body, and then nearly sees the killer onwards it's like i don't really understand any of her actions post that moment like she doesn't tell the police she goes back and tells her mates about it and then it's not till later when the police are interviewing her and she was like oh i was i was in the flat earlier when he was in there and they're like what it's it's all a bit it's all a bit weird and doesn't really make any sense from that point does it yeah because yeah. it's like there wasn't there wasn't a name there wasn't a yeah name. Was in the apartment it's like whoa whoa whoa, whoa. they're like uh to, to, to quote the wedding singer, that information would have been useful yesterday. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's so true. Yeah, it's it's all a bit of a nonsense, isn't it? In that final act, it's true. It's like they had to kind of come up with something. You know, again, you get this big dimension films esque. You get this. It's almost like they're going for this scream esque killer reveal and this big final act with this big bloodbath and this big struggle, but it doesn't quite manage it, does it? Really? Yeah, which is a shame. Yeah, I think they kind of missed the mark on what what the Scream franchise like does really well is the killer reveal is the same for the the audience as it is for the characters. So mm. obviously we're like we're what the, I think the tension like the wind is taken out of the sails of it in that final act because we know we know who the killer is and I guess yeah there is an element of that bomb under the table thing like when's the bomb gonna blow but at the same time it's like it could be played so much differently do you know what i mean that kind of tussle between martin and craig could be about something else it could just be like frustrations of like martin is 
professing his innocence and kind of ends up getting in a tussle with him and that's when Patricia Arquette comes in and stuff like that and like yeah yeah it's true and also what's with <laughs> what's with the this old man he played one like theme oh. tune that accompanies the killer right and then when the killer decides to reveal himself to Patricia Arquette don't know why he does that he decides to reveal himself he does it by whistling that tune as well it's like what's yeah. again that feels like it was made for us for that moment more than it was as part of the story you know it's like what that makes no sense at all none of that yeah it feels like they're like oh uh nightmare on elm street's got one two freddy's coming for you it's like we need <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah. like everyone's got their kind of theme or something or like yeah we need, we, we need something we need a we need a hook it can't yeah it, it just that final <laughs> act it feels like there's a lot of like missed opportunities and like kind of I, I, I'm, again i'm not sure if it if it plays out like that in the original i can i can imagine it possibly does like i remember it being more gruesome and darker and scarier in a way but also i don't remember the story beats being that different i think it does happen fairly similarly to that um but yeah it's been a while since i've seen that the danish version to be fair but i also just love that idea that at the end when you like you say you see those two the two lead guys like wrapped in blankets at the end you know like these kind of final boys almost in this movie and i was just <laughs> thinking watching it last night i was like this is this is obi-wan kenobi and thanos just like huddled together in the back of an ambulance at this point you know <laughs> hilarious <laughs> oh that's perfect um so yeah and, and like what what one of the things i kind of just to draw it to like another a horror film kind of in a way, this there's like a weird. It feels like James Wan might have watched this, like when when conceiving of uh, Saw, because there's like just through some of the visuals and that kind of yes, uh, the look of the morgue and stuff like that, and the the kind of final act, like sawing off your own thumb to to get out of a trap to kind of take the killer down, feels very yeah, feels very Saw. It's true. It's so true, yeah. Even that kind of nursery rhyme song that accompanies the killer, there's almost something of that kind of dummy puppet in Saw to that as well, isn't there? Yeah, maybe you're right. I, I reckon ultimately it all comes back to Seven. I mean, like one of the big inspirations for Saw was definitely David Fincher's Seven. Um, and even though it didn't quite have that level of gore in Seven, there was a lot of that in the on the periphery, right? That these... these um, these detectives would come across this kind of scene of this crime where they would work out, oh, this woman had to either slice off her own face or she would be killed or this person had to do, you know, was force-fed or else he would be killed. Like these kind of horrible situations that those victims were put in in Seven uh, almost were a bit like traps and we didn't see them so much and then saw kind of up to the ante by sort of saying, well, let's actually show what happens when these characters get put through these tests. So I think ultimately they probably all owe a debt to seven really yeah, but you're right like some of those visuals and camera movements you know they do they are quite similar to saw actually as well like the camera is just like all over the place in this film in the same way that it is in saw which is true i'm possibly i possibly i just pulled that out because i was like i'm trying to look for something now in this film to give it a bit more credit than it's uh yeah it's, i mean uh, like I it's it's big and operatic in the way that james wan movies are all big and operatic like yes. rooms seem to be much vaster than they should be and there's this big orchestral score and there's jump scares and there's shadows and flickering lights and that's all such a james wan thing and that is all in this film to be fair so that's kind of yeah. interesting 
Yeah, like that yeah. morgue. It's like, why Why are those lights flickering? And I love that. Um, yeah. Why is this morgue designed like this? Like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and there's that... Um, there's that motif throughout the film as well where it keeps going back to a shot of like a light fixture with like moths kind of like rattling around inside and when we yeah, get I to the that. when we get to the third act they're all dead and it's like oh like that that I I love that as kind of like visual kind of something to hold on to. Like I'd be like, oh really I don't know. Yeah. Creeps up. I love it. I, I I really do. I think honestly everything about the stuff that happens at night in the morgue is so good in this film. It's just the other stuff that is just a bit all over the place. <laughs> but yeah, the, the production design, like we've talked about, the bin bags, the trees, the wind, the darkness, the flickering lights, the moths. There's that weird Polaroid picture of this man on death row that's just on the wall, like a black and white photo that's really creepy. Like I think all of that is just great. It's just like really yes. good horror window dressing and, and builds a real atmosphere, doesn't it? It's so good. And then the film, uh, like, introduces the the the, the on duty doctor who is played by horror icon Brad Dourif. I just wanted to play a clip of his kind of introduction to the film. Have you ever spent any time with the Zine family? What? Thorazine, Stelazine, Compazine. <laughs> no. They're really very nice. They will make you sing hymns while you watch a baby fall under a train. <laughs> no, thank you. I'm fine. Thanks. What are your opinions on Brad DeRiff's kind of uh, batshittery in this film? Kind of coming, just coming in now and yeah. then kind of being menacing, basically. <laughs> Well, it sort of feels like a 90s dimension film type thing where <laughs> we know we know it's Brad Dourif, they know it's Brad Dourif. Like, he doesn't really need to be there. He doesn't really act like a human being acts. Like, he comes in and he's quite menacing and over the top and quite nasty and then he leaves again, right? And that just happens a few times. And it's... it. Yeah, it feels like one of those 90s, like, let's put some horror royalty in as a cameo part kind of thing, doesn't it? And I mean, I don't mind that. I think it's quite fun. I quite enjoy seeing him pop up every now and then. And he is genuinely quite a horrible, you know, presence in this film. Uh, adds to the weird atmosphere. And, and that, that, there's all, there's all, if, if I've got this right, there's a moment where Martin calls him up and kind of calls him out and kind of says that he's the, he's the killer. Like, uh... Yeah, I guess he's also a suspect in this too, isn't he, really? You know, because he's this very unhinged, like seemingly unhinged doctor who always seems to be around at these moments when something bad happens in the morgue. So I guess it also adds to that list of possible suspects, doesn't it, as well? Yeah. Definitely. So, uh, yeah, as we start to wind things down, how do you think this works in, in regards to scares? Are there any particular scares in this film? Uh, yeah, I really do think this movie does a good job with scares. I think it. I think um, you know from that first night shift where he's by himself, he's you know the wind is whistling. There's a moment when he's looking at the red light, thinking, "Please don't go off," and then suddenly his buzzer, his like buzzer timer goes off to say he's got to do the rounds. Like I think that's a good jump scare. There's a moment when he's <clears throat> he's kind of got a bit more comfortable. And there's like, almost like a montage to some '90s music as he's like, like almost like skateboarding. He's like wheeling around on a chair in the morgue. He's having fun, and then suddenly he turns around, and there's like a a body's been moved, and there's like this trail of 
blood going out the door and suddenly all of the music stops and these like strings kick in yeah, yeah. Uh, when he sees this kind of body placed at the end of a corridor. I think all those scares genuinely work really well. I, I really like all that stuff. I think that's, that's where it really works for me, yeah. I think what this film manages to capture, especially in those morgue sequences, is an element of like that um a fear of like places do you know what i mean whether it's like sometimes it can mm-hmm. be a familiar place like i'm not sure how you are but like sometimes when like people yeah like when i'm left in the house on my own all of a sudden like so- something that i'm so familiar of like just becomes scary all of a sudden like the kind of like yeah. the noises upstairs and like it, obviously this takes it to the nth degree by like going well morgues are inherently quite a scary do you know I mean the the, the specter yeah. of death is looming yeah. constantly yeah. but like i find it interesting the way that it kind of takes just how a place can be quite terrifying i completely agree with you there's something really relatable about those human moments of fear at the beginning where he puts on the radio in his little office and he's like, okay, the radio helps. And he's kind of starts to relax a bit. And then he suddenly thinks he hears something and he turns off the music and he just sits there quietly for a moment, just listening to see if he really did hear something or if his mind is playing tricks on him. And like, that is a very real moment. I feel like I've done that a million times, like where I'll be alone in the house watching TV. I think I've heard something. I'll press mute on whatever I'm watching or listening to. And I'll just sit there for like silently for a moment being like, yeah. did I hear something? Was there something there? You know? And, uh, that is the kind of fear that we all have that horror movies at their best really tap into, I think. And yeah. yeah, this movie does genuinely, for all its flaws, it does have those real moments of true fear, I think. And that, like you said, that sense of place. And and it's something that The Shining does really well, which is make um, really make something uncanny and scary out of big spaces. And I think that 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 space where he sits in his office and it's glass and he looks out to that huge kind of hallway that seems to just kind of disappear into infinity. That is into the darkness. That's just a great, it's just a great production design and a great set, I think, because it really does feel like anybody could be out there lurking in the dark watching him, you know? Definitely. I, yeah, I, I often like uh, record in this, well, I record all the time in the shed, but sometimes I'll be late nights editing episodes and stuff like that to your point of like, frightening yourself so i'll have my lap i have a lamp on and then i i've had it many a times where like i just catch my shadow out of the corner of my eye and like <laughs> i'm terrified i'm like because it feels like i'm like some somebody's all of a sudden in here and like yeah i think this this film manages to capture that 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 fear that you manage to I don't know, it's, it's almost self-imposed and i think i think that yeah the shining i think this film not a massive debt but it's definitely i guess like especially in the 90s after after that film coming out in 1980 it, it looms heavy over horror from, from then on out right and it's kind of yeah e- even if yeah. it's nick nolte like going down the halls of the morgue with a baseball bat like it's kind of yeah rem- reminiscent to the to the axe wielding of the uh, finale of the shining so um yeah right as yeah as we wrap this up one of the things i like to always do uh, on this podcast is see if there was any copla connections in 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 the film so are there are there people who worked in this film or are in this film or worked on it that have worked with the coplas elsewhere in their career did you manage to find any mike oh god i do you know what that that is a good question i i, I 
I'm so unprepared for this. And I'm trying to think now if there are any. I mean, there must be, right? Because these are all huge stars. Josh Brolin, Ewan McGregor. They must have been in other movies with other members of the family, right? There's not as many as you'd think. I'll just rattle off a few. Just Yeah, there. go on. So Nick Nolte is in Life Lessons, a short directed by uh, Martin Scorsese, which is a part of an um, anthology called New York Stories, which has a short by Francis Ford Coppola. Josh nice. Brolin in 1996 um, co-starred, well, yeah, co- uh, is in the film Flirting with Disaster, which also Patricia Arquette was in, where he plays uh-huh. her her bisexual ex-partner who gets caught licking her armpit at one point in the <laughs> film so that's if, nice if, if you want to see if you want to see uh josh brolin licking patricia arquette's armpit uh seek that yeah. one out um and I, I like i like this one because scott buckholder who is just accredited as college professor in this film has a role in both Connor and gone in 60 seconds and you can kind of tell the career he's had because both credits are uh, Con Air is air traffic controller and Gone in 60 Seconds is Rent-A-Cop. So very much <laughs> small, small time roles every time. But, uh, oh, yeah. You've got to get it. those guys who do it. And um, Brad Dourif as well has worked twice with Nicolas Cage. Uh, one in 1993 with Amos and Andrew where he plays Ned Schoonholtz and in... Bad Lieutenant Port of Call, New Orleans. Of course. Yeah, Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I love that film. So all roads lead back to Nicolas Cage a lot of the time on this. There you go. There Um, you go. Is there anything in the film that you wanted to mention, Mike, that that we didn't at all? I don't think so. No, I think we pretty much covered it all, didn't we? It's a it's a weird film, and it's a film that sort of feels like it's been forgotten. Um, mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot to appreciate in this, especially from a horror perspective. You know, there's some genuinely good moments of horror in this movie. Yeah, I think it's definitely kind of uh, an article of the time, right? It's kind of yeah dealing with that post seven. It's got that dimensions film aspect to it, and it's also got like a element of like yeah that post that post tarantino world that it was made yeah. in as well where it's kind of the killers like quite self-referential the, the the main characters are having pop culture conversations about stuff and uh yeah a connection to tarantino as well this film was edited by sally menke uh long time uh now departed like editor who kind of did yes all, all of his stuff basically yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. There you so, go. Yeah. There you go. Shout outs to Sally Menke. This is edited well, at least. I mean, there's, there's some good cuts. It in this absolutely film. is. It <laughs> absolutely is. So true. <laughs> so let's get on to rating this film, Mike. And uh, the way we do it on this podcast is I always ask my guests, what would be the perfect wine pairing for this film? <laughs> oh my God. Does it have to be wine itself or could it just be anything that you'd pair with this? Uh, yeah, we're, we're always up for breaking the rules on this podcast. So yeah, yeah pair us with something. I mean, if it was wine, it would be something quite cheap, right? But I, w- I was thinking like you'd almost want you'd you'd want like a you'd want like a sort of cheap vodka, almost like the thing that that poor woman has to down in the restaurant, like something that maybe does the job but makes you feel a bit sick and dirty afterwards. I feel like it would be something quite. Uh, something quite cheap and low rent, you know? Yeah, I think you can get that from some red wines as well. And I think like, yeah. pairing it to a red wine is that aspect of 
the film thinks it's very serious. Do you know what I mean? And people who drink red yeah. wine kind of go, oh, I'm, I'm a serious guy. I'm a serious person right now. I'm on, yeah. I'm on the red wine where it's like, if anything afterwards, you just feel a bit like, do you know what I mean? Your mouth's claggy and you feel a bit dirty. And I think that's the exactly. aspect of this film. You get that. You kind of feel a bit like, I got a bit of a, bit of a headache from all that sugar sugar music and the high yeah. strings. Like. Yeah. Yeah. You're just left feeling a bit like it kind of like the feeling after you've had a McDonald's or something. You're like, well, that was kind of I thought I wanted that, but now that it's done, I'm not sure if I feel that good about it. Do you know what I mean? That's, that, that's perfect. I think that that is basically dimension films all over. Like, <laughs> yeah. a, a, at least a, a, like ninety percent of their output. Yeah, it's yeah. so true. Uh, cinematic fast food. Amazing. So, uh, with yeah, with your with your pairing, is that a bottom shelf, middle shelf, or top shelf? AKA, is this film any good? It's firmly in the middle shelf for me because I think Perfect. that there is some there are some scenes that are top shelf horror, and then there is some stuff that is absolute straight to video bottom shelf drivel you know and <laughs> and and it's a real mix from scene to scene as to what you're gonna get you know so i'd i'd put it firmly in the middle yeah a bit of a bit of a bit of a punch bit of a kind of yeah like, you, you, you dr- you're drinking what your parents have got left they've got a, they've got a hundred bottle hundred pound bottle of wine and they've also got a box wine exactly that perfect well, i like to end the podcast by asking some uh, impossible questions and the first of all being which Coppola family member would you keep, but in doing so, you get rid of the entire filmography of the rest of the family? Oh. I mean, I've, I think I've got to say Francis Ford Coppola. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of some of his big early masterworks, and I even love Bram Stoker's Dracula. And I think, what would cinema be without... <laughs> the godfather and some of those others from the 70s you know so i, I think i'd I'm, I'm being basic but i'd say it has to be the godfather of the coppola family himself you know yeah 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 it's, it's it, it, I've, I've said it before on this podcast and i'll probably say it again but like there is a big argument that it's kind of cinema as we know it doesn't exist yeah. without francis ford coppola he's kind of i know that uh, george lucas and steven spielberg kind of get the monikers of being they invented the summer blockbuster but without the kind of success of the godfather be, and as well being like uh, what would have been an r-rated film in america kind of yeah being such a smash and the the fact that francis ford coppola saw uh george lucas wandering around the warner brothers like back lot and said who's this guy who's on this film set who's like under the age of 50 has got a beard and glasses like myself. Like I'm gonna yeah. take this guy under my wing, and then obviously produced um, American Graffiti for him, and uh, released yeah. THX one one three like as as well, and kind of gave him the kick up the ass to be like, hey, you should make something. Then 1977, we got we got Star Wars. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, like, without that, it's kind so of, true. Without that competitive, yeah, without Francis Ford Coppola, I'd say being like first one to go over the top as like a director and go hey we can we can be this new generation the new the, the new hollywood gang like yeah uh, we we don't we, we almost don't get those guys and it's yeah like i think yeah his 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 mark on cinema will probably be 
outlive him by by years and years and years right definitely definitely yeah he's a he's a giant isn't he and even right now you know the godfather at the moment we're recording this the godfather is celebrating its 50th anniversary there was like a big event for it it's coming back to cinemas and people are still kind of discovering and falling in love with those early movies of his as well so yeah i I think it's got to be him yeah i was speaking to someone recently who said they had like got tickets to see it at the because it, it coincides perfectly with Picture House and Cineworld's um, c- Cinema Day where they're doing tickets for three pounds. So they yes. were like um, the screening. They 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 just got in like to a screening of The Godfather. And like who would have thought a film fifty years after it was released? Like yeah. people were going to be packing out cinemas for it. It's kind of as doing what I'm doing. I'm like amazing hopefully when uh when when that godfather episode drops uh like people yeah will, people people want to listen um so, absolutely yeah so mike based on uh night watch alone are the coplas the greatest film family of all time <laughs> <laughs> undoubtedly absolutely <laughs> <laughs> hey patricia arquette doesn't get to do much but she still she still does her best in this and yes they are the greatest family Perfect, perfect. And on to possibly the most important question of this podcast, and that is, what does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation? (gasps) Oh my god. (sighs) It's a really good question. I'm trying to think of something really deep and profound, but now all I can think of is like, can I use your bathroom, please, or something? I, 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 I have absolutely no idea. Um, God, what a film. I need to go back and revisit that film at some point. But yeah, um, I don't know. I bet you've got some good answers from people for this one. Yeah, it depends. It depends when the, the, the episode was recorded. Uh, at some points, there was a lot of like, I've got a good lawyer, just in case you might need one in the future. Um, <laughs> there's, there's been, yeah. Um, don't work with Disney has been like one of the answers. Uh, uh, um, how about I'm really sorry for all of my terrible Wes Anderson films I've made because uh, <laughs> not a fan, not a fan of his uh, of his more recent Wes Anderson output. <laughs> <laughs> sorry for letting Wes carry on with his bullshit. Yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, I, I, I'm so sorry about the French Dispatch if you have to sit through it because God. I would like Bill. I'd like Bill Murray to apologise to me for that film. <laughs> well, when it comes to the inevitable time I cover that film and I clip out something when I put together all of everybody's answers for that question, <laughs> that's that's what I'll be clipping out, Mike. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> Amazing. So before I let you go, Mike, it's your time to let us know where where people can find you and and, and the podcast. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, you can find um, my podcast, The Evolution of Horror, on all the normal places where you get your podcasts. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Evolution Pod, um, and yeah, you can find me on Twitter as well at The Movie Mike. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for coming and making some Copa connections with me. Thank you for having me. There we have it, guys. Another film ticked off of our 
ever-growing list. And a massive thank you guys for listening. Massive thank you to Mike as well for coming on and talking about this little oddity of a film. It was an absolute pleasure to have Mike on the podcast. Somebody who I massively admire and listen to his fantastic podcast. Not only do I enjoy it, but it always kind of gives me the urge to up my game and kind of see what I can do better in in, 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 in in a way that I think good art should do anyway or when people are doing something good it should really kick you up the arse to do something better really right uh, on, on that note I recently saw it I don't think I've talked to you guys about it on the podcast as of yet because I think I'd recorded the intro to the last episode before uh, before I had or maybe 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 I just forgot to mention it by I recently had the absolute oh, oh pleasure pleasure of watching the Godfather on the big screen and it was oh it was beautiful it was an absolute delight to sit there for all three hours of Francis Ford Coppola's crime epic and uh, I don't know why I'm just giving you a little bit of a flavor of my life right now but uh Next Wednesday, the 16th, I will be uh, treating myself to a nice little early birthday present because my birthday is the 22nd of March. So on the 16th, did I say? I will be going to watch The Godfather Part 2. All three and a half hours of it, baby. Treat myself to a nice little nice little everyman experience as well. Nice little nice seats kind of kind of maybe have a little cocktail before not too many i don't want to be using that toilet but um yeah if you've seen the godfather if you've seen um night watch or if you think that me and mike missed anything don't hesitate to get in touch obviously i'm mentioning the godfather because that may be coming up on the podcast at some point yeah remember you can always uh, drop me a little voice note uh, about your thoughts on the godfather i'd like to get as many of those as possible you can send them over to cagedinpod at gmail.com or if you want to catch us on the socials like i said if me and mike missed anything or you just want to have a general chit chat you can find that all at cagedinpod on twitter instagram facebook and letterbox i'd love to have you there uh, i'd love to chat with you i always love chatting with you guys so yeah come on over and get involved as for next week on the podcast i am joined by adam schneider uh, where we talk about the alex ross perry 2014 film listen up philip starring the one the only the delightful but in this case the absolute arsehole that is jason schwartzman it was a very very fun chat we kind of uh delve into what it is to watch a film with an unlikable protagonist is it a good idea we obviously sort of there's um wes anderson kind of chit chat in there there's comparisons made it's kind of inevitable with these kind of uh tales of these i don't know slightly unlikable characters we, we get into it on that episode yeah yeah make sure you kind of tune in next week for that one because it was a lot of fun so if you enjoyed this episode or any episode of the podcast so far you can always head on over to patreon.com forward slash caged in pod where you can 
become a movie brat bro. At the moment, we are in season one where we are looking at all of the films of Brian De Palma. Last week's episode would have been my chat with uh, Mark Searby and Matt Brothers all about uh, De Palma's 1993 film Carlito's Way. The kind of another crime epic. I kind of uh, state the case for that on that episode. And next week on that very same Patreon feed, we will be talking about The Untouchables. Again, another dip dive into the crime genre. And I will be talking to Rich Nelson of the Do You Want to Hurt Me podcast. So yeah, heading over there for as little as $3, I believe, or kind of like uh, £2.50, I think that works out as in, 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 in the Queen's money. So yeah, head on over there uh, to become a patron. That'll be a lot of fun. If you don't want to give me your money, you can always support the podcast by heading over to Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you're listening to this right now. Give us a lovely five-star rating and review. And always, in your reviews, please be sure to let me know what you think Scarlett Johansson says to Bill Murray at the end of Lost in Translation. It's one of my favourite things on the podcast to get the answers to that. And I can't wait to read some of yours. As always, guys, I have been Petrus Pat Silvus, your guide for the crazy world of the Copeland family tree. Remember to keep it caged in, and I'll catch you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, a Drip Town Limery, Maine, franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.